and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about open source sustainability. Very excited to talk to our guest today. Before we introduce both of them, I want to also make sure you know who the other voices are on this podcast. Like normal, I am Richard Litauer, everyone. I helped run this podcast. I also help run Sustain, which you can go to sustainoss.org if you're unfamiliar with us. I think this is podcast 151. So if you came here, you can check out the backlog. It's pretty cool. It's all there. We also have Justin Dorfman, one of the original founders of the Sustain movement slash organization today. Justin, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Happy New Year, sir. Happy New Year to you too. Justin is calling in from LA. I'm calling in from Vermont. And just to keep things the same, we'll have two other people on the West Coast today. We have Dudley and Wes Carr calling in from Seattle and San Francisco, respectively. Dudley doesn't have a last name, or if he does, it's exactly the same as Wes, because I'm pretty sure they're brothers. That's what their parents have told them. That's what they said to me. Dudley, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you. Happy New Year, and thanks for having us. Thanks for coming on. Wes, how about you? I'm doing very well. Hopefully, we sound somewhat different. As not to confuse all the listeners, uh, yeah, Happy New Year to you guys as well. Just use the Angular commit conventions whenever talking and make sure to say Wes colon talking about this and then introduce whatever you're saying. That would be the best. <laughs> you are different people. So Wes got his professional start in software developing Flash applications a long time ago. Then he worked on YouTube, Gmail, Docs, Google Voice, etc. When that was sold to Google, the company he had before that, he then joined Dudley at Moz working on Node.js, which is really cool. More recently helped out with Nevada's fight against COVID by developing exposure notifications apps and doing fun stuff there. That was Wes, I believe. Dudley, who again is a different person. It's going to be a long podcast of just confusion, but that's okay. Joined Google 2006 after they acquired his first startup. Went on to work on Google Voice and Chrome, Wallet Google. After that, he joined Moz and again, worked on more Node.js stuff and started StackAide with his brother. So StackAid.us is what we're here to talk about. It's a way to automatically fund all of your dependencies with a single subscription. And we've talked about similar things before. So I guess my first question after that long introduction to show that you two know what you're talking about and have made a really cool app to help out developers who you understand because you are them. What is StackAid and how is it different? So in the most simplest terms, StackAid is just a monthly subscription that you can use to fund all of your dependencies. And what we actually do is fund your first and second order dependencies. We thought that going beyond that level of kind of contributions that a repository or a project would receive just wouldn't be meaningful. And the thing that we concentrated on the most was making this as automatic and seamless as possible for you. So you give us access to your GitHub projects. We know all of what's out there on NPM, for example, and then we can analyze the dependency tree and fund everything on a monthly basis. So there are some similar efforts out there, namely kind of thanks.dev, but we have, I think, some key differentiators. We're happy to go into that if you think that's helpful. I think that would. We've had thanks.dev on, but that I mean Ali Neshat. So he was on this podcast recently, one of the last few episodes. I'm not sure the exact number. What was most interesting for me and in what you just shared was that you just stopped in second order dependencies. That's just a fascinating move for me. That seems like a difference from most of the other tools that we've looked at before, where instead of stopping at a dependency, it would just sort of eventually allocate a tiny bit of money all the way down. 
Can you explain to me why you chose to only fund first and second order when those are the ones which may be least critical for the entire ecosystem at large? To be frank, we weren't sure exactly how we should do the allocation. So just to be clear, when you give, say, $10 to Next.js, for example, what happens is they actually get $5 and then the other $5 is distributed amongst Next.js's dependencies. And that was kind of intuitively where we thought it made the most sense because we do want to fund the longer tail of projects out there, not just the ones that most people are familiar with and are extremely popular. So the way we went about verifying this is we ran a simulation of 5,000 subscribers funding existing open source projects on GitHub that are not NPM packages. And when we ran that simulation, we found out that this model that we've settled on does kind of the best job in terms of funding the middle pack and the longer tail of repositories and giving them something that we think is, you know, our goal of making developers be able to sustain and have careers developing open source. If we tweak numbers, you know, if we funded much further down the tree, then the returns that people would be getting just wouldn't be meaningful. That does make sense. Okay, cool. If your goal is to help developers be able to get money for their careers, for their work, can you talk a bit about impact that you already have? Like how many users are using the platform? We have around a dozen or so subscribers at the moment funding. Thankfully, they've been funding since the inception and every month, which is great. And we have a corporate sponsor through Century, which I'm sure you guys know, Chad Whitaker. He was super generous. But on the maintainer side, we have a few hundred. I think the last count was around close to 300 maintainers. And the number of projects we funded is in the few hundreds as well. So of course, we fund some very popular projects because that's just how it goes, like ESLint and so on. But I think the most interesting fact in that regard is we have a large percentage of our projects that we fund that are only in direct dependencies. That means... They are not a direct dependency of any of our subscribers, but they are dependencies of popular projects like React or Webpack or ESLint or one of those. And so all of their funding comes from the fact that we have this kind of sharing model between direct and indirect dependencies, and they actually get a decent amount of funding from that. I want to go back a little. In 2006, something happened. Your startup got acquired. What was that startup and where did you join? So we started with peer-to-peer web-based applications back in the day of LimeWire and all that stuff. But we saw that Google Maps had just come out and we were really big into messaging. You remember like Game and the Oscar Protocol and ICQ and all that stuff. Exactly. And so we wanted to do a web-based version of that. And I was doing a lot of Flash stuff and we thought, okay, we can make really compelling UIs and experiences on the web. And what actually happened was the Macromedia software at the time was so limited, especially for the larger scale apps that we were developing. And we ended up using the MTASC compiler, which was open source at the time, and heavily relied on that to build what we had. And so we ended up building a version of Google Talk that was web-based and ran on the Jabber protocol at the time, which of course is also open source. And that's the technology that led us to be acquired at Google. 
How did they get wind of it? Because there was no GitHub back then and all that. Yeah, we ended up attending a few conferences. I believe there was a peer-to-peer conference. This is really back in the day where Sean Fanning and Corey Doctorow, those kind of folks were, <laughs> were attending this kind of stuff. And I believe we ended up bumping into some Google people. And then I met Michael Arrington way back in the day when he was Tech still founder. like... Yes, yes. When he was still like hosting people at his home, like that were doing startups in the Valley and they ended up writing about us. So we actually ended up getting in touch with folks at Yahoo who were really big into Flash at the time as well and Microsoft Mm -hmm. as well. So yeah, we were very fortunate. Rest in peace, Flash. Yeah. For our younger listeners, Macromedia was the creator of Flash and then Adobe bought them and then ended up killing Flash. So just so you know. So you went from there. I thought it was Apple that killed Flash. Oh, yeah. Never mind. Yeah, you're right. It was Steve Jobs. Also RIP. Yeah, it just makes me sad. I miss Homestarrunner.net. I mean, I think it's still going. Strong back. Yeah. I'm curious how you went from there. So you worked at Google for a while, and then you switched to Moz and started working on Node.js stuff. When did you decide to start tackling dependency payments and helping out maintainers? So Wes and I have been close to open source for a very long time. I mean, we've consumed it since the late 90s and have benefited from it tremendously. But we've always worked on business-to-business applications or business-to-consumer applications. And you know, at the start of the pandemic, as you mentioned in Wes's bio, we worked on an open source exposure notification app for Nevada. And all of those things are super satisfying in terms of people using them. But we realized that when we worked on the exposure notification app, there's great benefit that we derive from something like that, that we know that we're helping real people, both employed there as well as the residents in the state of Nevada. But as technologists, we couldn't help but feel a bit envious of just the rapid feedback that you get from other developers who understand the problems that you are having and to be able to put something out there that help other developers kind of in the vein of open source. And so we live in that space, although probably not as visible clearly as other people. And so we wanted to make a concrete contribution back into the open source community in some form. That problem around funding was just kind of ever present. The people who had problems with it, their stories resonated with us. And we really felt like we had something to give in that respect. And so we started thinking about that problem. We certainly thought about the Node ecosystem in particular to begin with, and there was a seed of an idea. And then we just explored that over six to 12 months. Who is funding your work on this right now? So it's self-funded. Wes and I primarily do consulting. We've been doing that for the last couple of years going into the pandemic. What we love about that is that it gives us the ability to choose the projects that we're working on, but it also gives us the flexibility you know, to pursue things like COVID trace that we did for State of Nevada and now stacked. And so that's super important for us to give us that ability to kind of flex in different directions. And frankly, we've done startups previously, you know, where you cold turkey, quit a job, and then try and hammer it out. And what we realized is that your runway is incredibly short. The clock starts ticking immediately. And the reality is that most of these ideas take time. You need time to nurture them, to discover things, to get feedback and to grow it. And so far, we found a good balance with consulting and building this project. I was going to ask, do you guys ever get sick of each other? I mean, you're always like, you've been working with together forever. Well, 
West just moved to San Francisco. So I think that's helped a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Yeah, no, I was just wondering because it's just like, uh, it's just amazing, like your career and everything, like how close everything is. We used to fight a lot early on about what the other person was working on and responsible for and had very strong opinions about how they should do their job. (laughs) But over the years, I mean, yeah, I think we tend to view things in a very similar fashion for better or worse and have had a strong trust of each other's core competencies. So yeah, yeah, we've nurtured it well, I think. Well, that's good. I mean, if it works and you keep evolving and get better, then what else can you ask for? Yeah, totally. But our sister refuses to work with us. So <laughs> when we'd love to have her, but she's smart. She's way for working. Is she also an engineer? Yeah, she is. Oh yeah. my Lord. Three engineers. Wow. That sounds like a lot of cooks. So I think two seems to work pretty well. Stack eight looks pretty awesome. So good job. Thank you. Yeah. Although I would be curious to see what would happen. This is kind of a side project, kind of not a side project. It's a passion project for sure. And I expect that it's pretty lean as far as the running day to day goes because you still have to do your consultancies and manage your lives and all those things. But it sounds like you've had a lot of experience, right? And you've had experience with startups, so you know how that works. And therefore, you know how to keep things minimal as much as possible. You mentioned earlier, Chad Whiteacre, who is the best. One of the questions I have following up from that is, what's been the level of corporate involvement with Stackade? Is Century the only corporate donor to open source projects through Stackade? Are there other ones? Are you spending a lot of time thinking about how to pitch other corporate sponsors? So Century is currently the only corporate sponsor. We're certainly interested in working with others and We have actually kind of a business partner that works with us part-time who is also helping in that arena. So we're definitely reaching out to companies. But I, you know, and Dudley can give his own opinion, but for me, I think the most important base that we can rely on is individual developers. I think that there is a big problem with open corporate and enterprise open source funding is that they're responsible for most of the funding that's currently out there, but you know they get to choose and it's often just a handful of projects or maybe dozens, but we want to see tens of thousands of projects and developers be able to make a livelihood. And when most of your funding comes from just a few sources, that to me isn't something that's sustainable or something that you can rely on indefinitely. And so I think what we're going to do is pitch mainly to individual developers and have them build the groundswell of support long-term. Dudley, if you just get that blog post done, SourceGraph would be a customer. It's been on my to-do list for months and I just keep doing the reminder, like pushing it back. just hoping one day you'll be like, okay, here's the blog post. So balls in your court, bud. Well, I've written all the code. I'm just now working on the blog post. So what Justin's referring to is one of the instrumental things that we did to kind of prove the efficacy of StackEd was to build a simulation like Wes had talked about. And a key portion of that was discovering Node.js packages that are not part of the NPM ecosystem. And we did that using SourceGraph. It turns out that GitHub search is woefully inadequate. And SourceGraph was the only way that we could actually do that. Even the stuff that was in BigQuery, it was such a weird sample. It wasn't representative. We couldn't get a lot of the data out. So hats off to SourceGraph. It was the way to do it. And yes, that blog post is forthcoming. We did a lot of refactoring so that we could share it and really demonstrate how we collected that data. 
I definitely want to bring us on a stack aid. I just need to show my boss, hey, like this is what we're doing. So yeah, no, I'm looking forward to that. And it's just really cool to see it just when you're like talking about like building a model on doing this, I was like, this is so awesome that there's really smart people working on this. I guess what I'm trying to get at is like 10 or 11 years ago, like I would never imagine like we wouldn't gotten this far as like a community, like the open source sustainability community would be getting to doing what we're doing now, which is just, it's just hard to believe like how, number one, how fast time has gone, but there's actually like people doing it and companies doing it. So yeah, it's just amazing. I think technology certainly is playing a part of it. And we are exploring collectively with companies like PangSubDev alternate models in addition to open collective and GitHub sponsors and so forth about ways and avenues that people can make financial contributions. I think the big thing that is missing and SustainOS and others are doing this is to evangelize. And I think the evangelism is super important. Wes and I are very passionate about individual developers pitching it. And the reason why we think that is, is because I think, you know, a lot of the companies are not as progressive as source graphs and Sentry. And so they need more prodding to do open source contributions. And I think, you know, if individual developers are like, I am putting my own hard-earned money because I derive benefit from open source projects and my company should do it as well. I think that is truly powerful, not only for the projects that they're sponsoring, but also just the message. It's like saying, I'm not going to recycle, but I expect the company that I work for to recycle or, uh-huh. you know, that analogy is just, <laughs> there's so many different ways to do that. But I think we have to put the money where our mouth is and, you know, that's just super critical. So we do that, I think, and, you know, part of 2023 for us is really putting out a lot of content and helping accelerate what SustainOS is doing in terms of making that case. But for us, it's really going to be a focus on the individual developers. It doesn't discount what companies are doing. I think it's super important. But I think in terms of really taking to the next level, our thesis is that we have to start with the individual developer. So I really like that. I agree, especially right now, we're seeing a lot of corporate sources kind of dry up. It's a a spell, a lot of people getting laid off, and it's definitely... Like the Ospo is a fair weather boat. She only wants to sail when there's a lot of money out there to spend on things. So individual developers are a bit different. What I'm curious about is that means you're putting the onus on like the moral rectitude of maintainers for giving back in some way, right? Capitalism functions by exploiting the gap between what people can do and what they can provide for you in terms of money. And so asking people to donate is always often really hard when they could put that towards their kids' college, their own retirement, et cetera. So I guess tactically, I'm really curious, what are you going to do to try to convince developers to donate more of their money, especially in a bear economy? Besides putting out content, do you have any like other projects you're going to launch in terms of tutorials on why it's good to give back or something like that? One of the things we're going to try and focus on is demonstrating kind of the return on your investment, either for corporate or for the individual, and giving you a sense of where your money's going. And of course, we're not going to show you directly because maintainers and projects can distribute the funds how they wish. But we can give you a sense of kind of the health of a project or a particular ecosystem and what we can measure indirectly from financial impacts in terms of 
time to vulnerabilities being closed or bugs being fixed or how many releases they have. Of course, none of these metrics are perfect or always representative of the health of a particular project. But I think in aggregate, we can figure out a way to demonstrate that to you. And then you can see like, okay, this project has gotten funded for the last six or nine months. And here's the trajectory in terms of how they've been doing because of that. About once a month, I see some blog posts about a maintainer talking about the onus that is being or the expectations that are being put on them. And, you know, I saw one recently, which is like the license is the license. That is the relationship that I have with you. And it basically ends there. And we're definitely not trying to recast the relationship between the consumer of open source and the maintainers of open source. I think that is super important. We firmly believe that this is not a transactional thing, that it is a donation and there's no quid quo quo for those types of contributions. Like Wes was saying, it is super important that, you know, people understand when they are doing financial contributions that they are improving the general ecosystem. And not every financial contribution is going to fix your bug on that particular project, but we're invested in the Node ecosystem or the Go ecosystem or the Rust ecosystem. And it matters, you know, We've personally invested time and effort into those ecosystems and you want to see them succeed. You don't want them to just die in the vine and realize that you have to retool and rewrite things and so on. And I think people understand that level of investment and that type of return. And I think that's kind of where we want to orient people and we want to give them tools to understand that the financial contributions, if they're not making it, that others are making are having those types of impacts and that it's resonating with people. So... There's a lot of work that we have to do in that area. And hopefully we get to most of that in this year. It was a hard question. And it's a hard question because it's also the question that bugs me a lot because I work at Open Source Collective. And so I'm also wondering, how do I get people to donate more? What does that even mean? And I haven't thought as much about the individual donations as I could have. One of the questions I have for you, you've already done work with simulations. You've already looked at what would it take to make stack aid work? What's the minimum viable income that you think has an effect on a project's health? Have you looked into that before? Have you figured out, you know, $50 doesn't do much. $5,000 is unrealistic. Realistically, we want like $500 per project. And then how are you getting to that metric if you have one? We don't have an answer for that at all. I think... I don't have one either. So that's okay. Again, these are hard questions. So it's so situational, right? One project is one person doing a ton of work and it's sustainable in some way for the time being. And, you know, another project has a bunch of different people and it's super active, it's complex, you know, and then there are other projects that are just very mature that just need a little bit of guidance from time to time. Sindre, for example, has thousands of packages and it does an amazing job maintaining them. And I'm not quite sure how he does it. Me neither. But he has a, pro- he has a process. <laughs> he has a process and it's amazing. It's really hard to look at it with a couple of handful of metrics and say, okay, well, this is what they need. I think it's too situational. What we do believe in, though, is kind of a minimum income for developers, right? Instead, let's say you could get someone who's quite active, like two or three or $5,000 per month. It's certainly likely not their entire income. I don't think that's what we're saying, but it gives them some room to breathe and allows them to do some things that they possibly wouldn't have done otherwise. And I think that's the important thing, right? 
there's a amount of space that we need to be able to buy people and give them that freedom and that cushion so that they can think of new things or reinvest it in things that they've done. And I think that is really what we want to do. And, you know, you see that in the political debate not that long ago with Andrew Yang talking about basic income. And I think we think there's a lot of power in that and giving people some of those funds and letting them choose how they allocate their time and surprising us pleasantly with what they do. I'm really glad you brought up that universal basic income is really important for developers or some sort of thing like that, right? Just giving developers a thousand dollars a month so that they can have time to work on different projects. They have time to actually flex their creative muscles and create new things in the world. Hard question I have for you is it seems like you're privileging developers who are already maintainers and or creators of projects and therefore already have some position of power within the ecosystem. Have you thought at all about giving money or trickling down or some sort of payments to early stage developers who don't have the opportunity to have already crafted highly sought after dependencies in the attention space? What are you doing to help diversify the developer stack? So one of the things that happens is with the allocation of our funds, we can't always get money to a developer. So just a quick aside, when we give money to projects, not all of them are Stackgate or have claimed their repositories through Stackgate. So what we do is we try to find them on Patreon or Open Collective or GitHub or some other way to try and get people their money because we don't want it, right? It's for them. Let's say just months go by and we just cannot give people their money. So what we'll do then is we'll reallocate that money to maintainers that have already claimed it. But even in those cases, there may just be some money that's left over. And we don't want it. We want to give it to promising young developers, like you mentioned, or partner with organizations that do that kind of outreach and funding So I think that's at least one avenue that comes to mind quickly. I'm glad to hear that because I feel like a lot of these paid developer things just seem to be going towards the main projects. And especially with your cutoff, the first and second order dependencies, it seems like more money will still be allocated towards very charismatic large projects or charismatic developers like Sindre. And so I'm always trying to figure out like, how do we help out the majority of people? That using Open Collective certainly helps with that because we're not based around single developers, based around communities, at least on the OSC side. Although that does sound like I'm kind of pitching it. I'm not. I'm just trying to talk about how we can best help out the field and ecosystem as a whole. Because I think the monotony of the same type of developer and the same type of project and getting money doesn't help anyone. One thing that I think is a little different about Stackade, and I don't think it's entirely unique, but it's a difference that we've realized opens up some other opportunities, is that I think unlike Open Collective and GitHub sponsors, we actually don't sponsor an organization or a person. We actually sponsor a repository. Yeah. And what ends up happening there is that the funds flow to a repository and that repository, it can have a set of maintainers or there could be a, an entire organization behind it, but it becomes like, you can think of it as like bank accounts. In fact, we eventually attach a Stripe account to that associated with that repository. You can have an individual who receives that funds or it could be a whole organization We think of maintainers as people who are writing the code, but there are designers, there are people who do documentation. And it's the people behind that repository can decide how that money gets allocated. And I think that's powerful for the people contributing to something like that. So it it adds all the flexibility and and to some degree, it just kind of kicks the can down the road 
but it gives people a lot of flexibility about how they want to use those funds. What we've seen though, is that for example, that model, when we've modeled it that way, it allows us to go into other spaces that seem impenetrable. So for example, in the brew space, that doesn't fit the normal model. You don't have a declarative list of files or dependencies. And so it's been harder to fund that. I know that the founder of Brew is doing something around that, but we have our own format called the stack.json. We can generate, like we can take up your Brew list and just generate that, put it in a repository, and then you're funding Brew packages, right? So as long as we discover the repositories associated with them, you can now fund the set of things that you've installed on your machine. That model, I think also, if you have a repository somewhere, or frankly, kind of by extension that a URL, you can potentially fund that. And I'm hoping that flexibility kind of extends to other areas that are potentially surprising and opens up avenues for other people. Are you totally agnostic with how people spend the money that you're sending to them? Yes, we are. Solves that problem. Okay, cool. Sweet. Do you have any guides? Do you have any suggestions that you give to them? About how they ought to spend their money? In order to make the project more sustainable, as opposed to say, just pocketing it and being like, well, that was cool, made that project a while ago, and now I'm not going to give it forward. No, we have zero guides around that for a couple of reasons. One, like we had spoken about earlier, is that, you know, different projects need different things around maintainability. And frankly, like if you look at Open Collective and GitHub sponsors, you're sponsoring the person, you're not sponsoring a project. And I think our intent is similarly, right? The money that goes into a particular repository, for example, right, is a signal to that developer. You should potentially do something around this if you think it's needed, right? Like if there are a bunch of issues and open PRs, potentially address them. The other thing is if it gets forked, they lose that. If people shift the money to another repository, that's a fork because that is being better maintained and that is a signal to that developer. But for example, if you go back to someone like Cinder, like if we're funding Chalk and it gets a ton of downloads, but it just doesn't need a lot of iteration, I'm happy that he's getting that money and potentially investing in other open source projects that are kind of newer and that people are yet to discover, but potentially getting a lot of value out of it. So I think that flexibility is super important. So we don't want to be particularly prescriptive to open source developers. That's a good point. Like it could be subsidizing the next generation of a chalk-like app. Yeah, it should just be pretty hands-off and neutral. I think there's concern still amongst people that you know, you might make a donation or especially by companies, we might make a donation to this project and they do nothing with it. They just pocket it or they, you know, and I think there's definitely a concern around that. That will always be an issue. And I don't think any safeguards are going to basically prevent that. If someone wants to phone something in, they're going to do it. I think we're missing an opportunity by worrying about some of the worst cases that might happen out there. And I think what it ends up doing is so that we're so cautious about putting money in the space and just having people run and build on that. If we put these restrictions out there and just pump the brakes before we really allocate the money, because someone might not appropriate properly, it's just going to limit it. It feels like these government assistance programs where you have to jump through all these hoops, but in the process of having to jump through all the hoops in order to get just basic housing that you desperately need, you miss the job that you're supposed to have in order to qualify for it. And it becomes this vicious cycle. And I don't think it's similar, but I think the thinking is the same, which is like the amount of money that we're talking and on average giving to people, it's not worth the effort in policing them. Yet. Yeah. 
I'm curious, what's been the hardest thing about building Stackgate so far? I mean, you and Wes have worked together on a lot of stuff, so it surely wouldn't have been the dynamics of figuring out how you're going to do this. But what was tough that was surprising? Yeah, I'd say from a technology standpoint, yes, it's been pretty straightforward. There are some just crazy history, especially with NPM, where they didn't get their act together initially. And so there's all kinds of boards and stuff to work around there. But as with most of these things, it's doing the outreach and tackling the massive project of getting tons of developers on board and addressing, of course, there's going to be like early skepticism around being able to trust us. For example, I was in a Reddit thread talking about this and people are like, oh, people are just going to scam this. Or how do we know that you're not a scammer? And I'm like, oh, I just spent, you know, almost a year working on this. I'm sure I could figure out better ways to scam people if I was so inclined. You know, that's fair. I understand that we're young and relatively new. But yeah, building that, building the trust in the community, which we're very much committed to, obviously, and just doing a lot of outreach and getting the word out and getting developers on board. Speaking from experience, I wouldn't bother about people on Reddit being angry at you. That's, if anything, a good yeah, that's, sign. Yeah, that's fair enough. <laughs> so, <laughs> totally. I mean, I had someone yesterday try to invoice for more money than they had in their collective. And when they didn't get paid more money than they had, they called all of Open Collective a scam for like two hours. So it happens. <laughs> so what are you most excited about besides putting out a lot of content this year and trying to get thousands of developers on board? It seems like this is the kind of thing where once you hit like a critical point, you're going to have what you need in terms of success for the site. Do you have any longer term goals beyond getting that tide flow, a sea change of developers into the platform? What else is exciting on the horizon? I can tell you this in terms of long term, I personally do not want to be in a position to sell Stackade. And I mean, I obviously want it to be extremely successful. I want us to be able to earn a good living from it. And of course, all the developers earn a good living from it. But we don't want to pursue like VC funding, for example. We don't want to be acquired. I think that's super important because a lot of times and people's like favorite projects and technologies that they rely on end up going to a larger corporate entity, and then it gets disbanded or advantages in some way. And I think when we have more solutions out there and more offerings, that the whole ecosystem is healthier for it. That's some reverse psychology stuff, to be honest with you, but I'm just joking. No, I think it'd be great if you can make it a forever company. Selfishly, it would make me happy, but it's it's a really interesting time because you have thanks.dev, you have all these other players in there, and I'm just really excited to see the competition and the innovation that comes into funding the next generation of open source. I think we're totally excited about competing with these various other platforms as well. I mean, because it drives us to do something that's unique and better for our maintainers and developers. I actually had a chat with Ali that just before Christmas. And it was actually super fun catching up with him. And He's a good doing, dude. Yeah, like he's him. a good dude. Okay. And yes, in some respects, it is competitive. But I also made the argument while we were chatting is that there's a lot of similarities and there are also some differences. And I think it is important for us to remember that while these things are overlapping and certainly on paper competitive, that it is not a zero-sum game. We mm -hmm. want to expand the universe of companies and individuals that are contributing or funding open source. And certainly you could argue that there's going to be a winner and 
But I think the space is so large and there's so much work to do to get people in. And there are lots of different approaches to doing that. But I think if the space grows, everyone wins. And I think that is the focus. And so I think it absolutely makes sense. And you know, our message has always been to people that just fund open source. You don't have to use Stack 8. Use one of any of these things. Just figure out what works for you and actually start doing that. And I think that message, if it starts percolating, benefits everyone and we all win. And I think that is what I care more about than obviously I want us to succeed as well, but I think it's far more important that we all get a foothold or something resonates that makes the space grow even more rapidly. In the end, it's who wants to put all their eggs in one basket. There's a reason that we have a open collective page and a thanks.dev page and soon to be a stack aid page. It's just Putting all your eggs in one basket is just, to me, is just not a really good idea. And also, this problem is so big that I think there's going to be plenty of business to, again, you're going to share a lot of the same customers. So, Absolutely. And I think Ali in particular is doing a really good job focusing on corporate customers. I think he's really passionate about it. They have a good yep. message. And I think they're very tuned to that. We really want to focus on the individual developers and that experience. I think a big part of this is actually still data that even though there's things like libraries.io and other subsequent projects and the stuff that Google and others are putting out like that space, the data around it, I still think can be a lot better, especially the freshness of it. And I think there's a lot of contributions there that make our lives easier, but also lead to all kinds of other insights. You know, when we're talking about visibility and understanding impact, the quality of that data is really kind of integral to that. And I think hopefully this year we see a lot of advancement in that space. Couldn't agree more. We are running up on time, however. So I will have to say I wish the best and I really hope that this goes well for you too. It seems to be going well so far. I think there's a lot more room in the space. I mean, we've just been talking about Anglophone dependencies at the moment. There's a whole ton of other code out there as well, which is written in other languages, written in other countries. So really excited about this. That is cool. But before I move on to Spotlight, Dudley and Wes, obviously you can go to stackade.us to look at more about this, but that's also stackade.us, which is the other pronunciation for it. Where else can we follow along? Is there a special blog? Do you have Mastodon accounts or Twitter accounts that you want to plug? Yeah, we're both on Twitter at Stackade, and then we're also on mastodon.social at Stackade just in case. And actually, increasingly, we find really awesome people focused on our community on Mastodon. Thank you so much. Yes, hit them up there. Follow along. Super exciting work. But don't leave yet. Now's the time for a spotlight. Spotlight's where we talk about projects, people, things which have helped us out in our lives, which we think just need a little bit more light shed on them. Justin Dorfman, what is your spotlight today? I had to do something that I haven't done since Time Machine came out for the Mac OS X. I had to do a clean install and I couldn't get Ruby to work the way I needed it to. I kept being all these errors. And then I went on Twitter and said, help. And Nate Hopkins told me to use something called ASDF, which is a way to manage multiple runtime versions with a single CLI tool for Ruby, for Node, and a bunch of other runtimes. And it's just, it worked. It worked so good. And thank you so much, Nate. And you could go check them out at asdf-vm.com. 
Awesome. Thank you so much. Mine's a bit different. I'm going to plug Donald Hall, who used to be the U.S. Poet Laureate, wonderful poet from New Hampshire, passed away around three years ago. I really love his essays. They're absolutely fantastic. He wrote a few books of essays later in his life. One of them was recently brought up on The Marginalian, which used to be called Brain Pickings, which is one of my favorite blogs. It's called The Third Thing, Poet Donald Hall on the Secret to Lasting Love. That's mainly romantic love, but you know we all love open source too. It'll be linked in the show notes. Just Donald Hall continues to influence how I think about the world, which I think is awesome and important. Dudley, what is your spotlight today? So mine is the NSQ project. Uh, I was originally created by the Bitly guys. It is a distributed messaging platform. It's been around for a long time. I've used it numerous times. I've contributed to it. It's an incredible piece of technology. All the cool kids are using Kafka and things like that, but there is something very nice about NSQ. It is just simple and reliable. And if it fits your problem, it is tremendously useful. So I highly recommend people giving it a shot. Sweet. Thank you. Wes? I would love to give a spotlight to Benthos, which you can learn more about at benthos.dev. And this is a stream pipeline processing tool. I use it just all the time. For example, we wanted to find out all the repositories out there, do they declare a source of funding, either in a package.json file or in their GitHub configs. And Benthos just makes it absolutely trivial to crawl all of that data, extract the configurations and process that into a format back into SQL, for example, for us. Instead of me having to write custom scripts to do all this stuff, yeah, Benthos is the solution and it's great. Awesome. I'm going to have to check that out. Sweet. Dudley and Wes, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Stackade is really cool. Really excited to see how it continues to grow. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have any thoughts or any questions that you wanted to ask Dudley and Wes but couldn't, feel free to hit them up on Mastodon or go to our discourse at discourseofthesaintoss.org where we will have a thread open for this podcast and we're looking for your thoughts on it, what you thought. Always interested in hearing from our listeners how they think that this podcast is. You can also email us at podcast.thesaintoss.org and that goes to all the hosts, not just me and Justin. If you have any other guests, please do send them our way. We do need some more all the time. So that's very exciting. You can also always like this on Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever podcasts are made, sold, fashioned, and packaged. And with that, I think we're going to wrap up. Dudley West, best of luck. Thank you once again. Thanks for having us. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. 